John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 467.JE2402, certificate number 40170. Figwit. It must be taken deep into Mordor and cast back into the fiery chasm from whence it came. One of you must do this. We've talked about this before, but when did you first get on the internet? 1990, late 92, I guess. Oh, wow. Freshman year of college, everybody got an email address in the early 90s at at forward-thinking institutions. So early, 92. There's no web, but suddenly you had an email address that maybe your computer science professors would use. And I I was shocked to see you could use it to, I could email my family in Singapore and it would Oh, did I say the computer he said, word? He said the C word and the Alexa went off. I'm going to unplug that thing. Oh no, because they use it. They use it in this house. Yeah, to do diabetes medications. People will literally die if you unplug that. No, no. They, uh, there's a, like a drop-in function where basically this house, which was made in the 50s, has intercoms. It does have intercoms in every room. It has intercoms, but instead uh, they use the Alexa. Uh, yeah, that's that's the only thing we use the Alexa for is to be like, Drop kids, in. it's time for dinner. Yeah. Um, but so when, so I was, well, in 1992, I was on drugs. I had no access to computers at all. You can be on drugs and on the internet. Well, I know. As I figured a, I that. I think there's plenty of evidence to that. <laughs> I figured it out later. Um, I had, I, I was, I had zero resources. I mean, I didn't have a home and a bed in 1992, but um, I only became aware of the World Wide Web in like 1998, which at which point there were That's what, a little late news groups. Uh, uh, there was what was on there at then. I mean, you every, could, every company had a website three years before that. Really, 1995, there was a web and people were using those little eight bit graphic people running and yep, rainbows, little, little GeoCities sites, and so what were you doing in 95 on the web? Uh, I was trying to I was trying to figure out why it existed. Right. I understood email, right? And I understood news groups. That was where you could get together and talk tell about what X Files. Oh, I see. But they were very specific. News groups yes. were 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 targeted. You picked an, an uh, a news group that was talking about uh, Twin Peaks, or right. a news group that was talking about. Um, 
uh, Sandman comics or, you know, something like something early nineties thing like that. And it was like a message board. Like somebody would leave a message and then another person would all text reply. If you wanted to draw something, you would draw it with ASCII characters. And then when did the first photos show up on the web? When could you post a photo? Uh, you know, people would, people would post photos, but they would just be encoded as garbage text and you'd have to have some, I think this was mostly for photos of naked ladies, maybe. Oh, sure. Of course. Porn would be the first place for first thing to migrate on. And there was no platform that would support it. So you would just have to send out a stream of, of, uh, of ones and zeros that when properly decoded had nipples. I see. Because I remember the first, I mean, I got introduced to it at an internet cafe that was owned by a friend of mine that was called CapitalHill.net. It's still there? Uh, no, no, it ended up, uh, it, oh, it was so much drama, uh, the story of CapitalHill.net. And maybe I should t- to tell the story, but the news groups at the time, uh, they had a real problem because there was bad porn. Uh, and guys would come into the internet cafe and they would be, I don't oh, know. Illegal, when you say bad, you mean illegal, illegal porn. porn yeah. Where they would, you know, they'd turn the screen over toward the corner and I don't know, you know, like at the time it was all whispered and they were trying to combat it. But um, the story of CapitalHill.net was that there was um, there was a, a madam and her boyfriend who was also her pimp who were using CapitalHill.net as their um, dispatch center for their group of 10 prostitutes. They would get emails there. Yeah, and they would sit there at the cafe, and you know, and the they were, you know, youngish, in their 30s, and just the classic, like he was kind of a big guy with his shirt open, and she was just beautiful, redhead, and they just hung out at the internet cafe all day. And I became friends with them. And, you know, they were very personable. I liked them a lot. And then the guy that ran the cafe was like, you know what they're doing? They're getting emails. And then they're dispatching their girls with, you know, his cell phone was always ringing. Or one of the earliest cell phones I ever saw. Yeah, it's early for a cell phone. And so they were, they were running this racket. And I always wondered, you know, we'd be sitting, chatting, having some coffee, and he'd be like, hang on, I've got to take this call. And he'd be like, oh, and then they got so enmeshed in the story of CapitalHill.net that they ended up buying the cafe and bought the whole, bought the domain. You got to go vertical. So then so my- sex work goes vertical. My email address, which at the time was hotrod at capitalhill.net, then was like, like a basically- sex, A sex worker it was like email a, address. Yeah, it was like a, like a sex den. And, um, and then that got all convoluted. There were gangsters all around all of a sudden. And eventually it got sold- to somebody else who decided that he was going to cut off email as, a, access to the to the whole domain in order to threaten the the gangsters that were running it to I don't know pay him some large amount of money or he was going to shut off the domain. Do you really want to threaten gangsters when you're an internet well, uh, company owner? And I ended up I think I got the guy on the phone. There was still a phoneness to things. I finally got him on the phone and I was like, hey, I'm an innocent party in this, but I want to get my emails off of this server. And he made it go live for like 20 minutes so that I could 
get my emails from hotrod.net. And I wasn't able to do it. Hotrod at capitalhill.net. They're still out there, I'm sure, because nothing ever dies on the internet. All, all my early emails are there waiting. I'm sure thousands of people are trying to hack them right if, now. If there is a hacker out there that can get them for me. That's, you unwisely said your email address. Yeah, but then, but then, you know, I haven't used it since 98. But I had no idea at the time what the why you would use an internet other than for email to email your college professor to ask like what the assignment was and then apparently to do illegal porn or dispatch sex workers. Because social media didn't really exist and even blogging was very much in its infancy in the late 90s. It really was not clear to me what this would be. You know, it just kind of seemed like a place for companies to put coupons or something. I uh-huh. I, di- I didn't have this the same immediately democratized feeling that I had when I first saw Usenet or Gopher and I thought, oh, hey, this is how communities can form. But, you know, I quickly saw that there were places that were doing that with an easier-to-use platform. Yeah, this felt like like just at the beginning of – I remember walking around the University of Washington talking to somebody and we were both doing that thing that I think a lot of us did then, which was theorize – about how the internet was going to change the what, world. What a democratizing utopian force it would be. It really was going to be, right? The whole world, we have access to everything. It and briefly we, was, too. Like, it wasn't just illusion. Like, things did things did kind of change. It was easier to get kind, different kinds of information. It was easier to, like, find like-minded people. You could get around government censorship if you lived in a part of the world where that was an issue. So between 98, when it was unclear to you or me or anyone what the point of this was, other than uh, discussing Sandman comics, and when it was a utopian futurescape, like walk me through the technological changes that, like, that allowed or, or you know because you were really you were a computer programmer by now uh, early 2000s early yeah. 2000s so what was happening that that what what were the like the quantum leaps that the internet took where it became a thing that people used uh you know in hindsight in hindsight maybe this uh, is the historical record you're putting this you're reading this into the record Futurelings are, this is their only access to the history. I, I don't know what we think now about Web 2.0, which was kind of this 1999 initiative that was like, look, the internet's just got to be, uh, the, the web has to be easier to use. It's going to be like kind of more more democratic. You know, every everything's generated by everybody. Snorks are coming in. Yeah, it's participatory. That You know, the interface is going to be uh, better, I think. Um, you know, b- basically... Because there's, there was a design problem with the web in the earliest times, which is web 1.0. You'd have to you'd have to learn how to you'd basically learn how to sit and type HTML code, right? And those were the only people that could have websites. So web 2.0 was, you know, b- both a simpler, you know, easier, less barrier to entry, and more flexible web. But I don't really, I don't know how much that's kind of a just a marketing milestone and how much is just kind of the gradual, well, now social media exists. So this is really the only place to see your friends. It's no longer emails and texts and occasional visits to their blog. Now this is your one stop social life. But I feel like that didn't really happen until 2007. That's right. Um, 
So yeah, it was. I guess then it is kind of these web. If you're talking about earlier than that, and and that was about the same time we started having it on our phones, which to me those are the much bigger sea changes. Yeah. But at that time, yeah, I guess it's just, it's just um, web 2.0. You're not sitting there looking at content from Chrysler.com or Wendy's.com. Um, you're you're sharing images. You're posting videos. Yeah. You've got your GeoCities page where you have a a, a blog or did um, you have a blog a or a wiki. website? Yeah, like Post Jeopardy. It's it's pretty much. Um, abandoned and tumbleweeds now, but I tried to put something up every day, like, cause that was how you existed in a time before social media. Right. My public face is, um, just kind of journaling on, on web 2.0. So you own KenJennings.com with a hyphen. Oh, Ken hyphen Jennings.com. What's Ken. at KenJennings.com? I've said this on the show before. It's oh, that's right. Former, former, uh, it's some Florida Republican who once, once ran for the state secretary of state that's position right. and will not sell. And that thing is just sitting there forever. Just, just a, bl- a blob. Yeah, it's now it's it's basically plain text with a thing at the top saying he owns every Ken Jennings domain dot net dot because he was just a, a smart early right adopter and the thing at the top of the page I think now says if you're looking for the Jeopardy guy use the hyphen but he won't sell. I don't know. Oh Maybe God. he's going to run for office that again. Jerk. My first website was uh, the Long Winters website, which went live in I think two thousand two or three. And uh, I had to get talked into it. My friend Merlin Mann in San Francisco was like, you need a website. You're a band. And I was like, why would a band need a website? <laughs> but he built one. And then the um, the message board took off among our fan group. And it was really a, it was, a, I think of those as the halcyon days. Lots of people posting in it every, you know, every day, all night long, like really exciting. Everybody our age has these memories of just a lively community that was just more fun and smarter and more utopian than anything you had in real life. And super focused, right? Yeah. Like this band. And I'm sure a lot of those people were then also going over to the Death Cab for Cutie message board. I mean, they must have been, right? In hindsight, a lot of these communities were only around for like nine months. Yeah. Like we think of it as a healthy on time, but really it was... Well, the Long Winners message board, I think, was there from 2002 or three, and still very active into 2007, eight. Uh, but and I think it's maybe even still up there at thelongwinners.com. I'm just doing a little bit of buzz marketing, but you know, I'll still sometimes put in some search terms like, you know, if you're using a distortion box and a chorus pedal, like what happens if you put the chorus pedal first? in your signal chain and it will take me to your own site. No, it'll take me to a, a, some discussion group where all the posts are from 2004. Yeah. And, um, because that the search terms just return this, this really angry conversation between people that are like, that's the wrong fuzz pedal. Uh, so it's, it's funny that all that stuff is up there and still searchable. The one thing that I am glad I left, I, I blogged and left up there, even though, you know, Really, why are you journaling in public for everyone? It's out every time one of my kids, when they were little, said something like cute and weird. You know, every parent thinks, oh, I'll have to tell grandma that story. But you, you'll forget it immediately. Right. And I would just always put it on my blog. Oh, and, so it's there. Yeah, and their their friends can search for that, oh, whatever that hashtag is, dog. bewildering conversations. And, you know, I would have been mortified if my friends in middle school or high school had seen all, had seen cute, weird things I said as a baby. Oh, me too. But my kids just love it. They, you know, they ask to be read to from my blog in 2006 when my daughter said, thank you, Jesus, to a bearded lifeguard or or whatever the funny story is. Even now. Even now. 
as teens? Well, uh, I mean, you know, Will Wheaton, friend of uh, friend of Omnibus. I think that his, you know, he was so reviled as uh, Wesley Crusher, and he went on. He ha- he started blogging, and partly kind of to work through the. Um, he reclaimed. Yeah, yeah, he reclaimed being Will Wheaton. Yeah, he did. He uh, right right about this time, two thousand one. He had a message board, and he, because of his, you know, like revealing and open and and emotional persona and writing attracted a huge fan group of people. And a, a lot of it was like, hey, it was really hard to be Wesley Crusher and have everybody hate you. And here are some stories about how William Shatner was mean to me on a on a back lot one time. And yeah, right. He became he became who we think of now as Will Wheaton. Very seductive because that was impossible to do before. You know, right. you could you could just kind of change your narrative like that without having an editor or yeah. or uh, or an agent or a publicist. You know, um, it was the same thing for me after after Jeopardy. Thinking, well, that's fifteen minutes of fame, but if I want to like write, I'm gonna need to have another platform that's not a syndicated quiz show. Had you considered writing a book prior to that when you were like a bleep blorp? Uh, working behind a desk no, at an insurance I, company guy? No, I thought it was impossible. Right. I just, and uh, and it seemed impossible without... But, you know, this was the time when you could get a book deal by having a funny webcomic or yeah. a series of blogs or a running joke on a social media platform. Did you have an audience? Did people turn up to Ken uh, uh, yeah. hyphen Jennings? I mean, it's easy for me to say now that, look, social media was a plague. It made us all unhappy. And the only reason I say that is because social media was a plague that made us all unhappy. Here, here. Um but that's really kind of leaving aside the fact that I was able for over a decade to build an audience of people who no longer associated me with um, answering questions on a game show, but something more sustainable, which right. is talking um, about your kids' cute yeah, uh, just, animal videos. Yeah, just having a uh, having a personal life and a viewpoint and jokes and and of course there, as Will Wheaton and everybody and me and everybody else who was on there learned, there were downsides to leaving some permanent record of every dumb thought that came into your head. That is not the right way to treat a big megaphone like that. Right. Um, Cause we, you know, occasionally we said dumb things and, and they're in the fossil record. Um, but uh, that really kind of leaves aside the fact that that's all rounding error compared to just how it gave whole communities voices, let people find each other. Yeah. Um, For but, good and ill. Yeah. Without get, getting past gatekeepers. I remember First being introduced to what became known as nerd culture right about 2009. They weren't calling it nerd culture yet. They weren't, no. And and the idea that there would be fan culture about... 2009 is a little late for nerd culture. Well, but... but but not for me, right? I mean, I was like um, it's, it's 42 years after the first Star Trek convention. <laughs> <laughs> but I was coming at I was coming at the world from a from yes. a perspective that was like rock and roll. Right. And all of a sudden, uh through Jonathan Colton, uh I became aware of I didn't know there were Star Trek conventions or if I did, I didn't I didn't associate them with anything. I just figured like, oh sure, I guess you would do that if that was I saw people dressed as Star yeah. Trek people, but they're out there at a Motel Six. Yeah, well, I, you know, I thought about it as LARPing, like the people that go play swords and sorcerers. 
But I started but the to, idea that they would have some kind of cultural sway. Well, yeah, or or that it had anything to do with Marvel superheroes, or had anything to do with video games. Uh, I like, see. It's I cross. Yeah, I didn't get that those things would ever connect as a and become kind of a unified culture. And and I watched it happen, you know, because I was on that Joko cruise for many years, and watched the cruise evolve from that first year where it seemed like all these disparate entities that somehow were attracted to this one hub and went to Comic-Con and saw what that looked like. And I mean, I was such a fish out of water just walking around like, wow, this is what is happening. Video game uh, introductions. I went to PAX a couple of times. But then, you know, in the first time I think I've said, like I, I walked through it absolutely baffled until I found at the very heart of it those booths where it's just like like old crusty bearded dudes selling comic books out of boxes and you're like oh it's a flea market that, that it was. At, the, at the center it's like viger it was <laughs> like you it got was. you got the, <laughs> you got through all the shiny flashy stuff on the edges for the alien culture you didn't recognize and then it turned out it all came out of just some guy's yeah, garage this crazy thing and then i you know i knew who those guys were and i was you know i went up to those those booths and i was like do you have do you have Fat Freddy's cat number one? The guy was like, I think so, right over here. And there it was, you he's, know, these. He's eating a, like a, a, a salami sandwich. <laughs> but these like comic books that I had either had and lost, um, you know, like Mr. Natural or stuff, all, the, all these alternative uh, ripoff press comic books. Comics with an X. That, um, that I didn't think I would ever see again. And, you know, and I'm just spending money like crazy at those places. But then watching throughout the 2010s as that all, yeah, became a crazy V'ger. I still have those experiences, by the way, of being like, this is a thing and it's huge. I mean, meeting Colton was kind of like that, where I was like, guess I'll Google this guy. And it turns out he's this massive cult leader for this whole nerd folk scene I didn't know existed. Yeah. Or, you know, even to this day, like watching my kids just watch somebody speed run a video game. I'll be like, what are you doing? How is this the thing? And they'll have to patiently explain to me, this is now the biggest hobby in the world. Watching Tens people of millions play of people games. are watching people play video games. And I'm like, that can't be. I, let me check your math. Yeah. You know, you, even, though, even though nerd culture is mainstream culture, it is still kind of uh, you know, behind a curtain in the corner in a way. Well, it was like when I, real, when I learned, I think just recently that Rihanna is the biggest selling um, artist of all time. <laughs> so th there's, there's something I, I'm not making that up. I think that, I think that it's true. If you look at the top artists, I mean, I guess, I don't know, maybe, maybe thriller still outsells any other one thing, but like, um, uh, yeah, digital, Digital, right? Okay. Yes. That, that she's been streamed, what seventeen point one billion times? I guess it's it's just Spotify numbers. That was very that was very new to me. That I that I mean that maybe because because you're like Pauline Kale. None of your yeah. friends are, are streaming Rihanna. Like, Rihanna, what? what I'm not, Why? I'm not sure. I could Is this name a, joke? a Rihanna song. Is yeah. this a Rick Astley joke? So, so I feel like there's this moment around 2001 where. All these things were coalescing, and as you say, nerd culture was finding the internet and and 
crossing the streams and the tendrils were starting to to intermingle the Star Trek, the original Star Trek fans, but also Batman people, but also video game players. They were all kind of recognizing, if not that they were the same, certainly that they had common cause. Do you think it's the result of Batman suddenly being a $200 million movie? It's a result of video game sales? Or is it like the cause of some of that? I don't know. And and honestly, I can't... And I, and I don't know what role Generation X, and because all of that is, is, it predates like the rise of the millennial. Yeah, we've got a lot to answer for. Income, right? The millennials yeah. at that point didn't have the money to, or really the access. I don't think to be, uh, to be driving it. And I do feel like yeah, it's it's Generation X and our perpetual, our sort of like. A permanent childhood where people were like, you know what? I just want, you know, I, nothing's ever going to, I'm never going to amount to anything. I just kind of want to. I just want to look at Lego catalogs from 1990. Yeah. I just want to luxuriate in a time before I had to worry about things. Yes. And, um, and then the internet and then the fact that I think, yeah, Hollywood had run out of ideas and they were like, you know what? What about, what about Batman? Uh, it was it was it was the end of history, right? It was during that period in the mid '90s where we were talking about, oh, it's a post-racial society now. We don't have any problems. There aren't any Russians. We're just, I guess, it's just like Olive Gardens all the way down. What are our ambitions anymore? But I believe there is a very specific thing that happened. And I think we're probably going to get to it here, where the the community building. Uh, you know, getting these mass, what turned out to be massive cultures out of the closet and mainstreaming them really did change the art forms they were writing about. Yes. You do not get 30 interlinked Marvel Universe movies without, those don't come straight from an old bearded guy with a stack of comics. Those no. go through internet news groups and, and, uh, and then social media and fan sites and all the rest. And you'll see, I think in that era, like, and, and, and we are there now at the topic of the show because 2001 is when the first is when the fellowship of the ring came out. And I don't know if you remember the hype leading up to the release. Oh. <laughs> I was there opening night w- watching a guy dressed as Gandalf uh, and his, and his kids enter the theater. Uh, yeah, I'd bought tickets months before, and I'd followed. This was speaking of the the intersection of those Peter Jackson movies and the internet. Um, this was kind of the boom of like internet movie gossip sites where the nerds got early access. Like oh. some of the executives at New Line, uh, I think Mike DeLuca in particular, had decided to give these nerd fan sites to kind of take them under his wing and say, "I don't want to give it away, but what if?" Somebody named Ethan and somebody named Uma were Farmer and Eowyn. You know, they, they would kind of spread early casting ideas and rumors. Uh, so the nerds would get this stuff before the trades. Oh, interesting. So I had spent years reading on, uh, you know, all these sites that barely exist anymore. Ain't it cool news or whatever about, you know, every, every little scrap of casting information and location shooting information and screen adaptation information about, um, I guess the Star Wars prequels, but especially about the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings movies. And were you first in line at um, at the Phantom Menace? 
Yeah, I had, I stayed overnight in a parking lot. You did? Yeah, it was going to be the first new Star, newer Star Wars movie in 20 years. How could it be anything but a masterpiece? And so that was 1999. Yeah. Um, there was also, I think, The Matrix came out right same about year, then. Same year, 99. Um, so That was really the nail in the coffin for Star Wars. Uh, the Wait, Matrix? Yeah, this thing came out of nowhere, but it actually works on every level. Right. <laughs> unlike, <laughs> unlike anything about Phantom Menace. Did you know Phantom Menace was no good the first time you saw it, or did it... Uh, I think did... I've said this on the show before, but I saw it twice in 24 hours. Like, I saw it, I saw some midnight showing. Right. Um, just with, you know, me and my roommates. And we were still kind of like under the 2 a.m. kind of hallucination. Everybody's bopping beach balls around and cheering and everything. Right. And I was like, wow, what an event, you know? And it was only later that night watching it with like a broader group of friends that I kind of had the sinking feeling. You waited in line again? No, what, what? we waited in line a, a month previous and got tickets for two different showings. Oh, 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 I see. Whoa. There was some maximum. I am wow. definitely going to want to see this twice in 24 hours, I said <laughs> wow. to everyone, knowing that I would never have to eat my words. Well, so, I mean, I'm trying to situate myself in that time, and I think I was still just kind of, I mean, divorced from culture that wasn't weird Seattle cafe culture that involved whether or not to put your chorus pedal would it be cool to put your chorus pedal before the distortion Would pedal? you not even know there was a big new blockbuster movie out, or would you take pride in, I haven't seen Titanic? No, no, no. And in fact, Titanic is a good example. Some, a friend of mine, a part of this cafe culture, came up to me one afternoon and was like, hey man, I got tickets to see Titanic. And I was like, there's a movie about Titanic. And he was like, yeah, it's a, it's a brand new movie, and they're showing it at Cinerama. And it's a preview. It's not, it hasn't been released yet. We're all, we're all getting together to watch it. It's some kind of Paul Allen thing. And I was like, sure, I'll go to see Titanic and went down and it was one of these events. And, you know, watching Titanic at Cinerama was overwhelming. It was, I mean, it's so melodramatic, but also the special effects. That movie, that movie works like a, to this day, I think that movie works great. Yeah, I blew, remember blew seeing that away. in a theater. And, you know, and that guy, I hadn't seen that guy in years. And I was down at an architectural salvage yard not very long ago. And I looked across the, the like, hall of old doors. And I see this guy. And he sees me at the same time. And I'm like, it's you. I haven't seen you in 25 years. Where have you been? And he was like, I've been in Seattle the whole time. He was the guy that took me to see Titanic. Super nice guy. Uh but Did you guys reminisce about Titanic? We, well, no, but we sat there because we had been like cafe buddies and, you know, you remember what it was like to go into cafes. You, If you went into the cafes every day, you saw the same people and pretty soon they were your friends. It was kind of like going to a bar, yep. except for people that didn't drink. Well, the thing about the, you could go into a cafe all day, all day for 12 hours without the social disapprobation. Yeah. Sit and sit and write in your journal and yeah. look fascinating. Can't do but that you didn't drink coffee. So did you go to cafe? Oh yeah. To me, a cafe is just like a bar. You're describing just a den of iniquity to me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'm just kind of nodding and thinking like, when will you stop talking about these uh, oh. filthy caffeinated, over caffeinated? <laughs> it was amazing. We, you know, we, uh, we talked about, uh, overthrowing the round heads, uh, you, you know, could, yeah. I mean, that's what coffee houses have been for, for 400 years. And, yeah. and, you know, and I would still go to them. I would just, you know, you, you have to get a steamed milk or a right, you get chamomile a t- tea a or something. Tarani syrup in, in, a, <laughs> in a glass of soda water. Just put hazelnut syrup in something. Oh, it was so fun. But yeah, I was, I was dumbed to it. And I think I was, I remember driving past the people lined up to see Phantom Menace and wondering like, what could they possibly think? I mean, I knew I would see it. Uh, were, but you, were you gloating? Because that's a big part of 
a big part of what held nerd culture back was just the fact that it was easy for Jay Leno or somebody to be like, uh-huh. Uh, they've never kissed a girl. No, because I wasn't watching Jay Leno and I wasn't gloating. It just seemed like at that point in time, that's the wonderful thing about being 28 is you really see a huge difference between yourself and people who are 22. <laughs> and it's like, those guys are all 22. You know what? I remember when I was young and dumb. No, I wasn't gloating. I, I just, it was, I was completely away from it. And it turned out that when I read the reviews of Phantom Menace, because I was part of that culture where you read reviews oh, of sure. things you're never going to go see. What did Ebert think? Yeah, like, oh, shit, I'll see what the what what the New Yorker has to say about it. The reviews were ultimately, because they went through that whole process of, we were so excited, and the first time we saw it, we thought it was good. And then the second time we saw it, we realized that there was no, yeah. there was no there there. So I never saw Phantom Menace and never saw, I didn't see Attack of the Clones and I think I only went to see Revenge of the Sith because people were like, this is the good one. This has Darth Vader in it. This is like, of the three of this them, this is finally going to, we, we sat through all the pod racing to finally get to something Star Warsy. And then I watched, I watched it and I was like, this is the good one? Pretty bad. <laughs> but I, but I was right there for Lord of the Rings. Because you loved those books. I loved them. I loved those books. I read them in seventh grade. I read them again in eighth grade. I think I read them again in 10th grade. And they were some of the only books that I read multiple times. Um, they were what got me into Dungeons and Dragons. And those all- books are just foundational to, you know, 30 years worth of people. And, and, then, and then their kids as well. Yeah. I mean, just, just ultimately, I felt like how, how, these books would be with me the rest of my life. They shape your brain. You can and, say the poems. And they made me understand Led Zeppelin better. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about the Lord of the Rings and its significance. Recently. <laughs> two, two, two months ago <laughs> two on this great program. Uh, but it, it um, I don't know, that, that was always my entree into nerd culture because I didn't like superhero comics as a kid. I remember going to a birthday party uh, in probably 1975 where the birthday boy, whose name was Tony, gave everyone – two comic books as like part party favors, like, Hey, come into my party and everybody gets two comic books. And he gave me the fantastic four and the silver surfer. And, um, the fantastic four, I was just like, wow, there's a rubbery guy and a guy made out of cork and a guy that turns into flames. I don't understand why I would, why I would be into this. And then the silver surfer was so philosophical. I couldn't sure. make heads or tails of it. All that, that Stanley or a silver surfer where he's just sipping around thinking, yeah, he's if flying. This, if this be my fate, <laughs> must the surfer lonely be for, a, for an eon? It was, I, 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 I tried to, I tried to not, I didn't even try to get into it. I just tried to understand it. And it was so far over my head, but also what is the action? What are, what is the reaction? So I, I think that that pushed me even further out. Although I, I did like the 60s Spider-Man comics that you could get a hold of, kind of like you'd, you'd find a stack of them somewhere, and th- those were pretty fun. Yeah, I remember, I think maybe just the, something about Underoos and Electric Company had just convinced me that comics were kind of dumb baby stuff. Like maybe actually reading some sermonizing Silver Surfer would have helped me. But but you ended up being very into the Marvel Comics yeah, universe, like, or but like high school. I oh, think. I see. Like just having friends who were like exp- having to sit down and explain the X Men to me. 
Uh, John Hodgman has sent me the the oh yeah the Jack Kirby yeah the Jack Kirby super books fourth world stuff like a couple of different times always kind of excoriating me for not understanding John Hodgman book of the month club he's just like listen just, you need to he'll read just these. send you Jimmy Olsen comics until you unsubscribe <laughs> and I was like you already sent me this and he's like no you didn't read it you need to read it oh I sure I remember what when I first saw X Men but I was in college and somebody I was in some dorm at Johns Hopkins. And some guy was like, you need to read this stuff. This is very important stuff. And I, I, I got it. It's Those, about our time. Yeah, they were, they were kind of smart, and I, I got it. I do remember, because, because I had that same experience as a kid with Lord of the Rings, I remember going into Fellowship of the Ring just kind of like a, like a abused partner, just, <laughs> just preparing for it to be terrible. And like just like getting like having this huge moment of emotional catharsis, you know, not because anything was particularly delivering, just because I realized – it was not going to suck. It yeah. was, I was not going to have a, a phantom menace trauma moment, but this was actually going to remind me of reading the books as a kid. And I was just so happy that nerd culture hadn't let me down. Yeah, I, I definitely felt, and particularly after reading the bad reviews of, of phantom menace, I also was scared and, um, and watching it, I had that same experience of like halfway through going, this is good. Is it the first time that you that you saw something and you were like, this guy gets it and is like that? It's it's it drives all of culture now and it makes me crazy that kind of one of us, one of us thing. Yeah, yeah. But I remember thinking that during those Tolkien movies, like somebody somehow understood this and got all this money to make a huge budget nine hour version of this. Um, and it really was one of us, one of us. Yeah. And I don't think I'd ever had that feeling before. No. And uh, and I get the Oh I wait, get, the I, one I saw when when singles first came out, <laughs> I definitely felt like this guy uh there's a whole there are three or four plots of this movie that are that are dumb, but the rock stuff, like this guy gets it. You date one of the Wilsons for just a few months and you can make a, a two hour movie about Seattle. Yeah, well, you know, he <laughs> he knows all about rock, but but yeah, like the the stupid band stuff where they're sitting at the OK Hotel. And oh, that's like, funny. Hey, we're really big in Europe, right? You know, like that all just that was, was your music equivalent of yeah, yeah. It, it he felt it felt like he sort of got it. I mean, I don't remember an earlier time when I was like, I can't believe it. You know the the comic store inmates are running the asylum, and it actually I was so dumb that it seemed like a good thing to me. <laughs> well, the problem for me, the problem of the Fellowship of the Ring was. I do not like Elijah Wood as Frodo. Huh. I don't think he's Frodo. I think all the other hobbits look like hobbits. All the hobbits in the background look like hobbits in the background. Everybody looks, Gimli looks like Gimli. Um, Elrond looks like Elrond. What's your beef with Elijah? He's like a waif? He just doesn't have, yeah, he's too waify. Frodo is fleshier. Frodo has a bigger nose. Frodo Even is, if he's a, a cerebral hobbit, hobbits are still all about... The good life and and the mushrooms and yeah, hobbits are p- putting your feet up. They're chubbins, you know. They wanna they wanna have three breakfasts. And you Elijah, think Sean Aston should play all four hobbits? I do. Fro- Frodo, I mean Elijah Wood does not look like he has second breakfast. I mean, tell me he does. No. That guy's never had a second breakfast in his life. Is there a hobbit with a heroin problem? Because if there is, it's you haven't played by Elijah Wood. Yeah. And then later on realizing that Elijah Wood also only can express three emotions on his face and two of them are like weepy concern. He's so emo. And I'm just like Frodo, Frodo became, I don't know. Frodo was, was like born again hard. You know, 
He's not still like, oh, oh, Sam, this Sam the, Wise. You know, this is the same discussion they have in Christianity about whether Jesus should be a oh a, a tough guy, a, a muscular, a tough muscular macho figure, or a or a, 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 a limp-wristed victim. Right. Well, I mean, if if you're a Lutheran, Jesus is made of stainless steel. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's the same thing. You know, Jim Caviezel's got to thread the needle. He's got to be, he's got to suffer. Right. But boy, he's not a, you know, he's nobody's patsy. And I, I don't know. I, I just, I, I, in fact, I just watched the, the, the point of the Bible, recently. by the way, I should say the point of the Bible is that Jesus is a patsy. Really? He's not a tough guy? Well, I mean, he, he, he takes the fall for everybody else. Well, but you got to be tough to take the fall. Oh, sure. I'm not saying he's not tough. Oh, right. I'm right. not picking a side. Right. Okay. I'm just Both saying, sides. We teach I'm the just saying the gospels could be called <laughs> Jesus is the fall guy here. Right, right, right. I, yeah. So sitting through that first movie, I was like, this is incredible, but I cannot get past this guy that's at the center of the film. And then the trilogy, it's the same. I mean, as the trilogy wears on, Elijah Wood just gets worse and worse at playing Frodo. I I wouldn't have minded if they'd bumped him in. And uh, who was the the guy that played Bilbo that was from The Office? Oh, Martin Freeman? Martin Freeman. If if Martin Freeman had been Frodo from the beginning, I would be all in. All in. Because Martin Freeman looks like a hobbit. He's had second breakfast. I don't mind Frodo as an outsider, actually. I like the fact that he's never quite fit in because he's the, he's the um, wispy bookish one. I guess. But, I mean, maybe, it's not, maybe that's not textual, but you know, that's how you meet him. He's, he's, he's not partying with everybody else down at the, the Green Dragon. He's like up in a tree with a book. Yeah. Like it's, I guess it's, it's because it's, 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 again, it's because the movie was made by nerds for nerds. Here's your kind of sunken chested pale hero with his fat books and he doesn't quite fit in and, and he's going to save the world. You're saying it's, it, it's throwing a bone to like skinny nerds. Yeah. This is the, Oh, I see. Yes. That, I that's, see. that's a kind of nerd. There it, it yeah. It's the old school nerd of like, uh, like gets kicked sand in his face. Yes. I just, I think of all nerds as wanting second breakfast. Cause I want second breakfast. Everybody wants second breakfast. I well, but then I guess, you know, Frodo didn't. But this release of the Peter Jackson trilogy, I feel like really it's 2001 and it just landed right in the center of an internet that was trying to decide what it was. And there, there must have been, I mean, I wasn't really there. I think you were, but there must have been fan, it must have been a, an explosion, a literal splooge of traffic to, the internet, people looking for other people to talk about how great Elijah Wood was in the in Lord of the Rings. Yes. And then once, yeah, and in a broader sense, once those movies turn out to be the most profitable thing ever, then suddenly you've got everybody chasing that model of, you know, you get some unknown nerd who runs the material. He makes it true to his vision for nerds. You get a bunch of other nerds talking about it online by kind of drip feeding them uh, uh, gossip and and uh, set visits and stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, and this now is how you make, uh, you know, a five hundred million dollar movie. It's how you make five hundred million dollars, right? Right. Yeah. But and also, I guess you get. Well, what you do is you seed what has become global culture. It's not even nerd culture anymore. It is. It is. It's yeah, Hollywood. I guess the the um, the fact that these nerd uh, universes kind of take place in their own little world makes it easier to sell to somebody in Italy or uh, Egypt or China because you don't have to sell them on 
the shopping malls of of Back to the Future or whatever. It's it's something very specific. It's X Wing Fighters, or it's Rivendell, or it's um, Gotham City. You know, like the whole point is that this is not our world, and maybe that right. makes it globalizable. I feel like if Lord of the Rings was made today, if Peter Jackson was making these movies today, that at the end Samuel L. Jackson would show up with an eye patch on and say like, <laughs> "Come on, Frodo." <laughs> like I, I, I just, I feel like that those days where it was discreet, where these were, um, that the, where these were siloed, I guess uh, within the fan universe, I, I don't see any silos anymore. It all crosses over to everything. Everything is everything except nobody. That's the goal. If you're right. Disney and you want to make in the next three years, you want to make 10 of these movies and 20 of these TV shows, you want to make sure people don't burn out you want to make sure they and and you don't want to make you make sure they don't silo they don't pick their favorites right if it's all interwoven like a spider web then everyone has to consume everything right everybody loves the mandalorian sure well so within this perfect storm of the internet now is a thing what's the record for longest in an episode before mentioning the title uh, I don't, I don't know. Are we anywhere even close to it? I feel like there have been episodes where we never mentioned what, it. What or, are we at? What are we at right now? We're forty-three minutes. We're getting close. Um, within the within the film, there. Uh, watching that first movie, I think uh, there's so much information in it, and a lot of it for people like me or you, what you're what what I was watching it for was where does this deviate from the books, sure. and am I okay with that? Like. I'm a Tom Bombadil uh, defender, so the lack of Tom Bombadil in the whole c- corpus um, makes me mad because I feel like, and I, and and Ted Leo and I have had many discussions about this because he's a super Lord of the Rings guy, but you know the the significance of Tom Bombadil as described in the Cimmerillion, and Tom Bombadil as one of the old one of the old ones maybe you know that's all extreme, <laughs> and I love that you have a take on it. <laughs> But there were people who were watching those films, I think, at a deeper level or maybe watching them multiple, multiple times and doing things like searching the background, but looking at all the, you know, there are all those scenes where it's like, well, they're at Helm's Deep now and here come the elves and there are 1,000 extras that all look like elves. And you're like, how do you find this many elves? They invented software, I think called Massive, just to so that you could have a 1,000 characters moving on the screen at once without casting a thousand people. Right. Uh, you know, it, it, it created these big tableaus, which are now everywhere. You, right. don't, you don't get game of Thrones or, or, or Marvel movies without them. Without tableaus. Right. But, uh, but, but how they created, I mean, they basically created a race, uh, multiple races of people. Yep. How do you, how do you embody an Uruk high where you can put a thousand or 10,000 Uruk high and they all look like Uruk high. That's not, they don't just seem like, Oh, here's a guy in a, in a, Hat. And a very fun thing about those movies, by the way, which kind of got abandoned as that genre metastatized and took over the culture, is that it was all done in kind of a low-budget arts and crafts shoestring way in New Zealand Yeah, from all these people that were just kind of learning the right way to do things. Um, so it has this kind of fun, homemade quality. And the work's all excellent, yeah. but but there's no—what's um, the cheapest way to do this in a computer? Yeah, right. right. And, and I mean, I just watched them, and it's, it's still— they're very successful at what they do. Um, you can you can stomach the Elijah Wood for no 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 he's awful and I have to turn I have to turn my head away every time he furrows his brow and goes oh Samwise 
But the rest of the stuff is amazing. When Gandalf rides out at Helm's Deep with his with his staff held high. Oh no, he's a that's Minas Tirith, yeah. right? Staff held high, and he and he scares away the Nazgul. I still am, you know, I choke up. Good job, Gandalf. Yeah, uh, and I just wish that he would use that staff that way at any other point in the movies. <laughs> like, if you have magic light in your staff, why isn't that going all the time? Maybe Gandalf the Gray can't do it. It's only oh, it's, oh, it's right. only it's only a Gandalf the White option. But one of the funnest, I think, um, sort of fan. And I think this is also something in fandom, uh, you know, slash fiction and um, and kind of fans inserting themselves into the world of these creations. Yeah, participation. Yeah, like owning it, and uh, but also, I mean, the the degree, the granular ability to to look at these films and see the tiniest things, you know, see see things that are both, and they're not. They're not people like me who are looking for discrepancies and problems, flaws, uh, because I can't help do that. I mean, every one of these things I consume, and if I'm looking granularly, I'm looking for flaws. I'm looking for the wrong kind of belt buckle or the light switch that is upside down. But there are a lot of people looking at, at the at this at this extremely tight level, but looking for things to celebrate and looking for things to be thrilled by. And one of the most famous ones, and here we are now, thank goodness that this show is not regulated by anyone. The FCC can't make you stop talking about stupid Rivendell shit. No, (laughs) this is not owned by Sony. At one hour. We do not have an executive producer who's like, come on. Um, But in the first Lord of the Rings movie, at that moment at the Council of Elrond, and I'm sure there are futurelings who have been listening to this episode going, I have no idea what any of these words mean. But at the Council of Elrond, it's where it's a synod, where all of the um where all of the crew that is going to become the Fellowship of the Ring, the humans and elves and dwarves and hobbits. It's a summit basically. It's a summit. All these delegations of elves and dwarves and men discuss the disposition of the ring. Yeah. What to do with this ring, how we, you know, the the fate of Middle Earth hangs in the balance. You've maybe seen the meme of Boromir saying that you can't simply walk into Mordor with it. Right. That's from the Council of Elrond. Well, so Boromir did not end up walking into Mordor with it. <laughs> Spoiler, <laughs> Spoiler alert. He tries. But in this scene, um, there is that first kind of exposure to a uh, to a group of elves, right? You're, you're there at uh, Rivendell. It's a real elf... Uh, hangout yeah it's an elf hangout it's like an elf truck stop everybody loves elves they're because they're they're beautiful but they're also a little bit wicked don't you find elves wicked they're a little wicked i feel like elves are well they're certainly dangerous well they're, yeah they, they're they, they're gonna live forever they see you as an animal yeah they're not gonna eat you but they still see you as livestock in a way yeah they're not they're not kind or gentle to human beings they've got long hair they've had straightened by a dominican lady <laughs> and here they all are in this little paradise that they're very unhappy. And they also seem unhappy a lot of the time. They're pining for the for uh, 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 the undying lands. Right. As the camera pans across this group, Elrond is standing there and Frodo says that they've decided, you know, what needs to happen is this ring needs to go to Mount Doom. And Frodo has to be the ring bearer because he's inherited the job and also Gandalf and Elrond seem inexplicably to think that this is a job for a hobbit because the hobbit 
has hairy feet and can get in where no one else could. A human couldn't do it. Also, humans are too susceptible to the ring of power, whereas hobbits just want a second breakfast. But at this moment, the camera pans across this group of elves, and there's an elf standing there in the background. He's only on screen for about three seconds. He's not an elf that I would have noticed or you would have noticed or been able to distinguish from any other elf, digital or otherwise. Mostly because of his three seconds of screen time. He's only in there three seconds, and he's not what you're meant to be looking at. But a fan, an Israeli student by the name of Iris Haddad, watching the movie, has an experience that she later, well, that she described as, look, Frodo is great in this moment. But who is that elf? Because he's a hot, he's a hot elf. He's hot. This elf uh, uh, to Iris Haddad. This elf is a hot. He's elf. also objectively hot. I mean, for me, he's a little slender, right? I like him. You know, I'm a little bit of a chubby chaser. I like him a little thick. The small but thick. That's your same problem with Elijah Wood. Yeah, he's too he, well. But the he's thing spindly. is, an elf should be. S- slender and scary looking a hobbit shouldn't be he looks like an elf for sure in this moment and he's a dark-haired elf he's not one of these like uh like crazy blonde elves but iris i guess either has super eagle eyes or by this point i mean when did these movies arrive on vhs when could you watch them at home. They could have come out on DVD. They came out on DVD at the same time as they came out on VHS, less than a year. Less than a year. So she's, she has the capacity or the capability rather to, to freeze frame, to rewind. Who is this magic elf who's captured my attention? And she coins the name Figwit, meaning Frodo is great, but who is that? But no, but. Right, but the butt is out. It's there. it's interrupted. Frodo is great. Who is that? That's right. Frodo is good. Who is that? And so Iris, along with her uh, her friend, her internet friend Sherry De Andres, they put up a website. Frodo is great. Who is that? Frodo is good. Who is that? And they discover, in the style of the time, that they are not alone. And the more they direct people's attention, the more this website, which is whimsical and fun, the more uh, the website directs people's attention to this elf, the more there uh, develops a appreciation society, and Figwit becomes a becomes an actual sort of character within the Lord of the Rings, the extend the extended Lord of the Rings fan culture. Then as now the internet lets anybody become a little celebrity. Right. You get to kind of feel the glow of a thousand people knowing your work. And this is a, this is a, this character has no name. It's just a, it's the, the actor that plays this character is not distinguished in the credits. Not he's a just, speaking part. No, he's just one in a long, long line of, of, uh, of people playing these thousands of people. And it was very hard for the Figwit fans to identify the actor, you know, in a, in a list of names that actually played Figwit. So there was also the kind of mystery of who is this person? And as the fan culture around Figwit exploded, the actual actor who played him had no idea that he had become a, a, uh, an internet celebrity. He was, 
increasingly one of these people that's famous for being famous. Uh, and he was, what's the timeline here? Has he already moved on to other things? Well, so during this period... Because I know how this ends. Yeah. During this period, the actor playing Figwit had, a, he was a New Zealander who had a, his own sort of, I mean, he was cast, he just went to a casting call and got had cast the right as look. himself, had the right look. But he had his own creative project, and he and his friend, Jermaine, were busy with their sort of nerdy comedy music project that, um, that was called Flight of the Concords. So before, you know, when Flight of the Concords was still a, like a New Zealand, you know, local act, a kind of cafe act, uh, Figwit had already become a big enough deal in the fan culture that Peter Jackson, somebody who's very conscious of the fan group and cultivating the fan reaction, uh, recast Brett, and his full name is Brett McKenzie, recast him in Brit uh Brit in the in the present in, in flight of the in the New Zealand accent Brit uh cast him in the return of the king and the, it, there wasn't time to cast him in the two towers but put him in return of the king and this is a nod to the fans a nod to the fans absolutely oh he, he, I have some thoughts about nods to the fans. He would not have appeared in this film if not for the phenomenon of Figwit. And in the Return of the King, he really appears as the elves are. Where is he? Well, as the elves are are leaving Rivendell and they're headed out to the port to get on the ships to go to um, to the magic elf land. Where I'm not sure what happens there. Are, do they all die or do they live forever there on the? On an island elves, elves live forever on an island. Yeah, they go to live on the island. Frodo doesn't get to live forever. Frodo will still eventually get old and die, but he'll have a good time first. Well, and, and uh, you know, and, and Bilbo's already, like, at the very end of his... Bilbo's 150. He's 150 at the time, right. But Liv Tyler, uh, who is playing the role of... Arwen. Arwen, the, the elf who wants to become a mortal in order to marry Aragorn. She's really robbing the cradle. She's thousands of years older than this guy. But she does not want to go on to the, what are the magic lands called? Uh, I don't know. The Undying Lands. She doesn't want to go to the Grey Haven. So they're walking down to Grey Havens. They're headed to Valinor. And um, Arwen doesn't want to, not Arwen. Arwen. Yeah. No. It, who's uh, the blonde from the from the Rohan? Eowyn. Eowyn. Thank you. Arwen doesn't, she, she doesn't want to go and she has the vision. None of this is in the actual book. But the books have no women for about 600 pages in a row. Right. So, so Arwen gets, gets uh, kind of inserted in there and her whole drama about wanting to be with Aragorn is just like, this was one of the things at the time I was like, Arwen? Who's Arwen? She's marching down. She's so, she's desolate. And she has this vision of her son that she has with Aragorn. And she realizes that her father Elrond has lied to her. He he tells her that it's that her relationship with uh, with Aragorn is just going to be a, a source of pain, and and uh, it's going to make her make her life this awful awful thing. But she sees her son, and she realizes she's made a mistake. And then she's about to turn back to run back to Rivendell, and I don't know, reforge the sword that was broken or whatever. I don't remember the timeline. I but, think she does, um, but. All of a sudden, there's an elf standing there, and 
he says, but where are you going? Like, come back, m'lady. Some, some completely unnecessary line related to a, a, a scene that's um, non-canonical. And it's, here he is, Figwit. He's been placed specifically in... Britt McKenzie. In this role. Is prisoned. To, uh, to just throw a huge bone to the fans, to the Figwit fans. Well, this is absolutely at the same exact moment that he goes on to become, I mean, the Flight of the Concords go to the Edinburgh uh, uh, Fringe Festival this same year. Same year. And suddenly he's one of the most famous comedians in the world. Hilarious comedian. But he's already had this cat lady fan following. And he's been, I think Peter Jackson had to have made him aware that he was being cast in this film because he was figwit. But really, he only becomes aware of the extent of the fandom when he becomes famous separately for his for his comedy and the figwit people have now a name to put with the face they uh they realize that they have access to this actor who is um does this help with flight of the concords rise to success do you think they have a little head start must i mean when i first saw now now i don't know what your experience was but when i first saw flight of the concords jermaine clement is just hilarious. In fact, he would be an incredible Bilbo or a Frodo. <laughs> Jermaine Clement should have been Frodo. He looks like Frodo, does he not? Uh, I had never had a problem. The Hildebrandt uh, Tolkien calendar has always had kind of a wispy Frodo. Well, I feel like Jermaine Clement would have been a better Frodo. He should have been a hobbit, at least in that film in the background. Sure. But I found the first time I watched Flight of the Concords that Jermaine Clement, I thought he was hilarious. And I thought Britt McKenzie was kind of the... He was like the weird sidecar because maybe it was because he was too pretty. Um, but it was only on the second watch of Flight of the Concords that I realized he had an incredibly dry and wonderful sense of humor. And in some ways, like he's the funny one. Um, I mean, they're both hilarious. It's a wonderful TV show. I highly recommend it to futurelings that haven't seen it. But Flight of the Concords then becomes an enormous, you know, cultural touchstone in the in the culture at large. And there's kind of a nerd culture overlap too. Nerds love, um, nerds love funny gimmicky songs, novelty songs novelty in, songs. in a way that the, the, the hit parade has never really allowed, you know, nerds embraced, they might be giants right. more than the billboard charts did. Well, then flight of the Concords serves up some, serves up a bone to the nerds. Um, they write a song called Frodo's song, which they play in their set. And, Within the fan culture, they're also, I mean, at a certain point, they started to try and insert Figwit into the canon in a way that uh, was just like the fans taking over the world. And you can still find... Well, people writing fan fiction and slash fiction about him? Tons of it. And, mm. and you can find uh, Frodo is great. Who is that? That website is still up. It's still up in its HTML, all of its, you know, uh, all of its 8-bit glory. But they actually coined a real elven name for him. Um, they called him uh, Melpoin or Melpoman. Melpoman, which was a combination of Tolkien's actual coinage, his actual Tolkien languages. He had a word for fig, <laughs> which was Melpo. It's like elvish for fig. Yeah. And he had man, which was the, the word for wit. 
And so they combined it. It was a, it's like a, a Japanese approximation of an English word. Uh, they made a name for him, Melpain, Melpaman. This is reminding me of the thing it's a precursor to, which is um, people making up a name for uh, this kind of off-model My Little Pony. Do you know this story? Oh, no. It's, just an, it's, just, it's the same as Figwood. Some off-model My Little Pony appears in the background looking kind of uh, derpy on the show. Uh-huh. And the fans make a name for him um, or her. I, I, yeah, I think, there's, I think there actually is a a horse called... Wanda called Derpy or something. Oh, but, sure, Derpy. But then it gets, but then it gets, um, you know, fan popularity leads to suddenly her getting inserted into the actual canon, and now right. there's toys and, uh, and I have some reservations about this. Well, so this is what happens. It t- turns art into a into a weird kind of, not even democracy, but kind of. It's super. There's a reciprocity between the loudest fans and the filmmaker who wants to. I don't know. It cost Peter Jackson nothing to have uh, Brit show up and and do one weird and wink at the camera. Yeah, wink at the camera. I mean, I guess my what's my objection? Just the integrity of the piece is that those movies seem like they're taking place in. Middle Earth. Oh, right. Somehow we got cameras into Hobbiton and Rivendell and, and Helm's Deep, and this is what it really looks like, and this is going to take you away to that world. But now we're in 2004 newsgroup culture. And when right? when the movie starts to... Ref- when you can't watch the movie without thinking about how the audience, early audience response, all this ain't it cool stuff, has changed the work of art itself, Yeah. Uh I just it becomes harder for me to think of it as its own little world and more like a message from the director to me, one of the viewers. What will he be putting in to delight me? What will I object to? <laughs> what a weird way to see art, you know? Especially this kind of world-building immersive art. What ended up happening was that there was an hour-long film about the Figwit phenomenon <laughs> that interviews a lot of the the cast members of Lord of the Rings. The film was made by uh, Brit's fiance, uh, who ended up becoming his wife. And then Figwit became a figurine. And all of the Lord of the Rings sort of uh, like licensed merchandise now includes Figwit slash uh, Melpomane as a canonical. This gave the fans too much power. When they were uh, when they were a little trodden upon subculture, it was okay to say, "Wouldn't it be fun if you could have your own elf appear? What a, what a fun little what a fun little Easter egg or bonus that is!" But now that these fans are just massive, shouting mobs. Uh, I mean, last year, do you remember last year when the Sonic the Hedgehog trailer came out and Sonic looked just nightmare inducingly awful? No, I have no idea what those words mean. Okay, they're going to make uh, Paramount's going to make a movie about Sonic the Hedgehog. Who for is some Sonic reason. the Hedgehog? He's a some Sega kind of... video game character. Oh, he's he, a big he, video He's game. blue and he runs around. Oh yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Uh, he's, you you yeah. would no no sane person would have an emotional attachment to him. Let's let's put it that way. Okay. And yet, tens of millions of people rose up on the internet to say he looks weird. This is not how I imagine my Sonic. Again, these people have been imagining their but, Sonic. But doesn't Sonic have a look? Isn't he already yeah. established as? Yeah. This this has been. Um, is he like Grogu? He's been modified for the movies in a way that the fans objected to. And they're not wrong. Objectively, I think they're right. He looks pretty weird. But I think the, the thing that was worse was the movie studio immediately terrified at this kind of 
mob rising up said, no, no, you're right. Uh, we'll, we'll go back to the drawing board and we'll give him new eyes and new, oh. new hands. And, and suddenly within, so all these animators had to work around the clock because of, um, entitled but, fans, but it was digital so that they could change the eyes without having to right. redo the movie. Yeah. Like yeah. You, 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 you know, we're a few years away from being able, from fans being able to say, um, well, I guess, I guess they digitally turned Kevin Spacey into Christopher Plummer. I mean, if you think about it, futurelings are able to insert themselves into the omnibus. That's, it's, it's only a matter of time before Patreon donors to the Cimmerillion movie get to actually put themselves in the film. That's that's totally going to happen. If you if you give at the $100,000 level, you could be in the Matrix sequels. And that concludes Figwit, entry 467.JE2402, certificate number 40170 in the Omnibus. Uh, now, Futurelings, that capsule history of the internet ends with the terrible uh, tyranny in our day of social media. Uh, we were at Omnibus Project uh, on those various platforms. I was at Ken Jennings on some of them. You could find John Roderick under his name on Patreon. Uh, you could email us. Email stuck around somehow, although my, son, my kids don't read theirs. <laughs> Do you send your kids emails? Uh, no, but their teachers try to. Oh, sure. <laughs> it doesn't help. Sure, sure. Often I'll get copied on something from a, a family friend saying, hey, did Dylan get my email about... I don't think so. <laughs> Uh, the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. Unlike my awful kids, we read our emails. Yes. Um, you could send us physical items at our P.O. Box, The Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Uh, the community building that uh, I was poo-pooing earlier uh, exists at the FutureLink sites on Facebook and Reddit and Discord. Do we allow the art to be shaped by the the mob violence that rises up? Do we? I guess I was very aware that we had not mentioned Figwood after 45 minutes of show. Yeah, I mean... It, that, that's something I wouldn't have been keeping an eye on if not for a... Uh, if not listen, for people... Listener response. <laughs> ...commenting on it. But yeah, it seems like the feeling is very split. Half the people, half the futurelings love it when we don't mention the topic. And then the, then the grousers, the ones that think that this show is about things... And they they come in there and they're like, abba, 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 abba. we will never change the eyes or nightmare inducing hands of a single hedgehog to please you, the listener. This is our vow to you. Our work will remain artistically pure. Yes, we are the we are the Angry Birds movie of of this kind of fan repurposing. You will have many ideas uh, of ways to make it better, and they are all correct, <laughs> and none will happen. Uh, the best way to support the show, as John alluded to earlier is through our Patreon, where uh, you can receive bonus episodes, um, autographed show notes, physical artifacts at the at one of the higher levels. Mm-hmm. You can suggest it. To, the one way to insert yourself into Omnibus to suggest a show topic, uh, it's going to happen with next week's shows. I'll, I'll give you a little heads up there. Something to look forward to. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Not too late to give it the washing bear level and put yourself on that list. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past, where this is pre- a time when Ken and I have inserted ourselves into the Cimmerillion movie. That's where all my money is going. I really want to play Tom Bombadil. I think I'd be good at it. They'd have to shrink me down. But Do you believe that Tom Bombadil is in fact a Luvatar? Is Tom Bombadil You know what? God? I'm not going to go on the record either way. Because I don't want to get angry letters. Oh, man. From the people that think he is slash isn't. The Bombadil stands. Yeah. Although I do stand for Bombadil. 
Uh, we hope and pray that this catastrophe we fear, which is to say Ken and me inserting ourselves into the Cimmerillion, uh, we hope that uh, and pray that that uh, never never comes to pass. But if the words come soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>